Welcome to Before You Go. I'm Nicole Franklin. And I'm Bryant Monte. Bryant, I'm thrilled to have Joe Gatlin <laughs> of San Pedro, California with us today. I bet you know why. Yes, but I'm sure you're going <laughs> to tell everyone, right? <laughs> I am. Well, like yeah. you and I, he is all about documenting stories that would be lost if we didn't speak to our elders and learn of unsung heroes and sheroes in our history. Oh, yes, and I love it. And Mr. Gatlin's own story is one of perseverance and victory. So Mr. Gatlin's family sued and won for equity hiring in the Port of Los Angeles. Now, it's one of the largest employers in the area. Sir, it's wonderful to meet you. So let's talk about how all of this got started. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Nicole. How are you doing? Doing well. I love that voice. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect voice for radio. Yes, Mr. Gatlin, please tell us. Well, and you talked about the uh, equity and hiring. Uh, I'm going to kind of tell the story. In 1941, blacks came in from the South, all through the South, to work on the waterfront because of World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and they came in in large numbers. Our family was part of that. Mm-hmm. My father from Arkansas, my mother from Shreveport, Louisiana. And they worked the waterfront, okay. which was San Pedro. Uh, at the time, we had Bethlehem Steel, Naval Shipyard. Uh, it was a huge complex. The canneries, the largest in the country, the shipping. ILWU was actually a large employer, but not the biggest because we had so much going on because of the war effort. Well, when the war ended in 45, a lot of the soldiers came home and they displaced a lot of the blacks working on the waterfront. Oh. And that's how the lawsuit ended up starting. So in 1954, our family, my father, John Gatlin, started a lawsuit that ran 19 years before we won it in the early 70s. Wow. The lawsuit pretty much stop the sponsorship of jobs on the waterfront. In those days, if you worked the waterfront, you were allowed to sponsor a family member or a friend with an application. Mm-hmm. But if you didn't, if you weren't working on the waterfront, there was no way to get this application or job, if you understand what I'm saying. Yes. So mm-hmm. we were less than 1% of the waterfront. So we were only getting less than 1% of the jobs. So when we sued the uh, waterfront uh at that time it changed everything it opened up the ilwu which is the largest employer at the time and it these are jobs we're talking about six-figure jobs Hmm. but during that period of time many of the blacks had to leave san pedro to look for jobs other places because when the soldiers came in it took away work from us but it was a Hmm. huge victory but if you can imagine in the 50s and 60s while we were doing this lawsuit it wasn't a very popular thing, knowing that we were suing the white population to get jobs. So when we finally won it, we were pretty much considered the black sheep of the waterfront, which okay. we understood. And so we <laughs> kind of kept it really quiet, but it couldn't be quiet because all my father's brothers got jobs on the waterfront. Oh. Uh, we got dollars from the, uh, the unions. Uh, so it worked out well. Mm-hmm. It worked out very well. May I just go back a bit? Your family initiated the lawsuit, correct? That is correct. If you Google a Gatlin lawsuit on the waterfront, it's us. Yes. I mean, 
were you threatened at all? Because we're talking about longshoremen, maybe some women, I'm not sure at that time, who um, really coveted keeping it within the family. I mean, how did that personally affect your relatives? You have to understand during that period of time, the largest Croatian and Slav population in the United States was in San Pedro, oh. Italian San Pedro. The Greeks were in San Pedro and they were strong. They did not like sharing. If you can hear what I'm trying to say to you. Yeah. So they were, they had all the power, they had all the money and they were talking about, no, they didn't want to share. This was a, a very scary time for our community. But uh, you fast forward during that period of time, there's only one high school in San Pedro. Mm -hmm. So all the children of all those workers went to the same school. Mm -hmm. So we end up knowing each other. In fact, local president who was a pre became president of the ILW worldwide, we went to high school together. Oh. So next thing you know, things slowly broke up where we were no longer the threat, but accepted. Mm -hmm. And so now at the point, I'll say for about 20 years, we were like 18% of the waterfront, which we thought was great because we were only 5% of the population. We were happy with it. Mm -hmm. But in the last 10 years, that went down from 18% to 7%. So we're now working with the unions again to get back. This is a, a fight that it just doesn't end. Why do you think it took so long? You said it was a 19-year lawsuit. Well, finances. I mean, you have lawyers involved. Mm -hmm. And also you had a very strong unions fighting against this and a lot of money. We're talking about a right now, give you an idea. This waterfront does a billion and a half every single day in commerce. There's what? a lot of money going through this waterfront. A lot of money. Uh, oh. We're talking about families are making literally millions of dollars a month. Mm. A month. Fight very hard to keep what they have and spread it amongst their family, if you understand. Yeah. So all the lawyers, all the, the major players, the city attorneys, the mayor, whoever it is, they had them in their hip pocket. So it wasn't an easy thing to win. Just, just so we understand how that whole process works. So you receive these containers from different countries. It comes to the port. It's distributed. How, how does that whole process work? Well, let's back up a little bit. Back in the day when we started the lawsuit, we didn't have containers. Oh. So to get a job on the waterfront as, a, say, a longshoreman, you went down, mm -hmm. you stood there and raised your hand, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and you got a job if you weren't part of the union. It wasn't until in the 60s that containers, that Los Angeles and Long Beach took the chance. We weren't the major port at the time, but we took the chance with containers. And we redid our entire port to receive containers. Well, it was a gamble that worked out very well. We ended up now becoming the number one port in North America. Hmm. Well, once that happened, the jobs went from mediocre pay to skyrocketing to six figures. Average longshore makes 150, 200,000 a year. Some make three and 400,000 a year. They make good money. And they don't, a lot of them only work 20, 30 hours a week for this. We're talking about so. You can understand them fighting very hard. Now, the first year, the first year that we put up, it was in 74, the applications for these jobs, over 400,000 people nationwide applied. Wow. I mean, because in those days, if you got an application, you got a job. 
Okay. But it didn't mean that anymore. Once we won the lawsuit, you actually had to go through a process. So it was, it was a great time. So you ask, how does it work? When you have shipping companies, we have 13 terminals. When they come in and they bring in these ships, they hire the union. Mm-hmm. They hire unions too, which is the ILWU, to unload these ships. And if you're not part of that union, you don't work. There's no in-between. And, and to get into the union, you have to be trained, certified. How, how does that work? Well, Black, I'll go back again. Right. It was father the son or father to whatever. If you passed an application, that's how you got in. A sponsor. And okay. now, now we changed that once we won the lawsuit. They have what they call a casual hall, where now we have over 10,000 members who win the lottery, basically, become a casual, and then they train you. You go through training to drive a truck, you go to training to lash these containers, you go to training to do certain skills. But prior to that time, there wasn't any training. You just simply on the job training. Hmm. Wow, this is incredible. And did you work at the port? <laughs> they, they, they laugh at me about that I work at the time. Hmm. As you remember, Vietnam was a young kid during this period of time. In 60s, early 60s, Vietnam started. Okay. And as you know, in those days, if you, once you turn 18, you automatically are in the draft. Okay. So at 65, I'm in the military. Right. During a time that I would have been working on the waterfront. And then I ended up becoming a commission officer. And mm-hmm. so I ended up staying in the military for 12 years oh. during a period of time when our family was given jobs to work on the waterfront. But mm-hmm. because my name was Gatlin and I lived in Pedro and everyone knew everyone, they gave me a car to work. Oh. So over, say, a 10-year period, I might have worked an average of once a month. But I was busy doing other things. So is that freelance? What Once a month? What is that? <laughs> they work on the waterfront. You don't have a steady job where you go to work and punch in eight to five. Okay. You go to a, a hall and you see what jobs are available oh. and they call numbers. Okay. So you may work one place, this one terminal one day another terminal another day. You may be a truck driver one day. You may be a lasher the next day. You didn't have a regular job or you may be a crane operator. Now, those with special skills like crane operators. My brother was a crane operator. Okay. So he had a job that he went to every day. Say 80% of the jobs on the waterfront, you had to go to the hall, listen for your number. If you want the job, you take it. If not, you didn't. So the average longshoreman can pretty much pick and choose when he went to work. If you were a longshoreman, for example, and you didn't want to work for a couple of months, mm-hmm. nobody cared. You just didn't go to work. Then okay. you come back in the next day, you go to work. Right. Or if you wanted to make an extra money so you can buy you a refrigerator, you put in extra hours. Yeah. Then you have a community like San Pedro where one out of every five families work the waterfront. Wow. So very supportive, very union driven. And so everyone knows everyone. Pedro is a small town of 80,000, but everybody knows everyone. It mm-hmm. sounds like a wonderful community um, on the port and you know in the larger area of San Pedro. So you guys couldn't be at odds forever after this lawsuit, you had to come together. I think the biggest reason that we did, if you can imagine it in, in the forties, when all these families came in from Europe, the Croatians, the Italians, mm. the Greeks, all came to one community, the blacks from the South. 
if they would have come to a normal community, they would have been lepers. They would have been left out. We all came to the same community right. and jobs were abundant. And one of the things that we all end up knowing each other. Yeah. Uh, so over a period of time, it was very difficult for some of the power players who belong to power families to be against you. And again, I'll bring up a, a name, Dave Arian. He was president of the ILWU worldwide. We went to high school together oh. and a good friend. Oh. So it opened up doors simply because we knew each other as friends. And you guys played football together. Well, well, Dave <laughs> football, but I did. I was varsity track captain. I was. I thought I was a jock in the day. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah, right. So it, it was a good thing. And as you know, back in the day, track was king. It was bigger than football. Yeah. Back oh, yeah. It was huge. Yeah. Yes. Can you take us to now? What's happening on the port now? Because I know a lot of stories have come up about the lack of supplies and the lack of uh, things getting to their destination because of log jams, I guess, at yeah, ports. Yeah, the backup. Mm -hmm. The backup. Is, is that happening where you are? Oh, well, yes. It's, it's not only happening. Okay. But you, yeah. now I want to, I'm trying to be careful how I say this because but at the same time, it's it's a fact. I remember we talked about power families and power groups running this organization for now almost 50, 60, 70 years. Mm -hmm. And it's sometimes in their advantage to slow things down, they make more money. Uh-huh. Okay. Where it may not be in the country's best interest, if you can understand what I'm saying. Yeah. So if let's say we do, let's say a terminal does 300 lifts, which means 300 containers are moved in an hour. Well, let's just give that as a number. Mm -hmm. Well, it's to the longshoremen and some of these operators advantage if they only do 250. Mm -hmm. More okay. people work, they do this. Uh, there were organizations that triple and quadruple, and one of them, 10 times what they normally make, they're making because of the slowdown. Mm. So what's the incentive for some of the port personnel who are high on the chain to move these products when they're making 10 times more by slowing it down. Okay. I see. And right now, part of that problem, now we had tons of containers, empty containers sitting all over the, the waterfront mm -hmm. because things were so slowed down where normally we would have four to five ships waiting to come in. Right. At mm. one time, we had over 100 ships oh. waiting to come in. Oh you can goodness. imagine those ships normally come in, they turn around in six or seven days and they go out again. But if they're sitting waiting for months to unload, it's cheaper for them to just turn around and go straight back than to wait for a container for another three or four months. Mm -hmm. So containers that they would normally take with them, they're being mm -hmm. left here. Now we were overrun. So now we're overrun with containers. Mm -hmm. So now ships are coming in with full containers but no place to put them. Right. You can imagine what I'm saying. So there is no mm -hmm. place to put them. So they were stacking them on top of places. They were going to places. So if you were, say, Walmart, now you had a yard that maybe only had two or 300 containers. You knew exactly what was in that yard. Mm -hmm. But now that yard has a 1,000 containers. And yours is buried in the middle. And so instead of you just taking two or 300 that month, you got to take the whole 1,000 or don't take it at all. And some of these companies chose not to take it at all because they had no place to put them. Mm. 
simply mm-hmm. have no place to put them. Um, it's again, mm-hmm. it's a complicated answer. And you saw the port authorities here locally mm-hmm. going to the White House regularly. Right now, President Biden's in San Pedro today oh. talking to the CEOs of the port. This is a big deal. Right. Which I'm wondering how security is on the port because <laughs> this is very delicate. And um, yeah, what's security like? Security is actually good. It really is. Uh-huh. Um, they mm-hmm. have some pretty sophisticated uh, security. Mm-hmm. I had the privilege of working in, in that field in the military. I was in the missile field, satellite surveillance. And I can tell you for a fact, it's very good. Okay, because it sounds like there's a lot of personalities and um, in any industry with that much money to be had, there is some greed versus the working person who's the hardworking person versus capitalism. So, you know, when I think of security, I'm thinking of, um, you know, some behind the scenes shenanigans that could be happening as well. So it's it's very delicate and it's something that people have to be very There's careful a, around, right? A back, There's a lot of backroom deals going yes, on that is not in go. our best interest. Right. And yeah. also it affects the black community because almost all those backroom deals are done with families if they're Croatian, if they're Italian or whatever they're but we're not part of any of that. Not that mm-hmm. we want to be, but we're not. So we we're left out of for example mm-hmm. Not only we're talking about jobs, let's talk about something that's just as big as contracts. Mm-hmm. Right mm-hmm. now, there's literally hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars given out in contracts monthly. Yeah. Now, if you don't qualify or if you're not on their list or if you're not part of the good old boys list, you don't get a contract. Mm. So if you have a contract from Smallville, Mississippi, that's who's going to be working on the waterfront. Right. But if you had a contract, say someone from South Central L.A. that was worth $100 million, $20 million, you're going to hire from that community. Right. Right now, we get less than 1% of those contracts. Now, this year, we have a, it's just a blessing. Gene Soroka is the CEO of the Port of Los Angeles. Fortunately, he's a good friend. He came to me a year ago and said, Joe, what can we do to make hiring on the waterfront equitable mm-hmm. for the first time. I mean, he came to us with that. Good. And now we're working with the Port of Los Angeles and the Port of Long Beach for equitable hiring on the waterfront for Long Beach and LA this summer. Great. It's never been done before. So we're really, really excited about that. Okay. Now this is, we started this around because I, I did the Juneteenth celebrations here in the area for 20 some years. And so we were going to make Juneteenth as the kickoff. And that's what we're doing this year to let the world know that what we're doing. But we're talking about literally thousands of jobs on the waterfront. So we're really happy about that. Just curious, is it clean work? Is it dirty work? It's not like oil rigging or anything like that, is it? Yeah, it's all of that. It's everything you just mentioned. Uh, I mean, just a few weeks ago, a couple of our members were killed on the waterfront. It's dangerous work. But all of it isn't dangerous. And on the waterfront itself, it is. Mm-hmm. But you got to understand there's thousands of jobs behind the scene as mm-hmm. or a, an investment banker. There's every job isn't driving a truck or, or lashing a, a container. 
Right. There are jobs that um, you have a clipboard and you're walking around, but the majority of them are dangerous jobs. Yeah. Okay. So the training was essential, is essential. And um, is it still a case where you show up and you see what's available that day? Well, no, because we have what they call a casual hall. There's yeah. three levels. There's a casual. Those are those who are fighting to become longshoremen. Okay. So they get to do longshore work. They've been trained. They come to work every day to see if their number's called. During mm-hmm. good times, like right now, they work every day. Okay. But slow times, and they only work once a week. Once you get enough hours in as a casual, become a bee worker. Mm-hmm. You're almost there. A bee worker now is going to work, wow, every day. Okay. And he's going to make 100000 a year. Okay. But again, the top jobs are given to the A workers. Yeah. Now, once you get an A book, you're in. You work when you want to work, as many hours as you want to work, and you're going to make good money. And do um, the longshoremen take care of families? Like, are there internal scholarships, internal trainings, um, family uh, benefits? The benefits for the longshoremen are just outstanding. Oh, good. I mean, just outstanding. I can't even say it enough. Um, geez, my brother, for example, he retired, and I doesn't pay for anything. Oh. You know what I'm saying? I can't <laughs> tell you how much money he makes. He would it'd be embarrassing to tell you. Oh. It, it's just great. They take care of scholarships. I mean, because there's so much money there. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. If we could, I'd like to go back to your, your father. Um, what drove him to be persistent enough to uh, actually file a lawsuit? Because I know that took some drive, determination, persistence everything that goes on when it comes to court cases uh, to finish this to the end, to see it through to the end. My father left Arkansas, small town in Arkansas, 41, come here. Um, he said he's never going back to Arkansas. That year, KKK burned down his family's house and barn. Oh, my God. And he said, I'm not. So to come here, he was going to fight for whatever was here. Yeah. Now, when we got here, the jobs were plentiful. And we're making okay. good money, if you can imagine. Then all of a sudden, the war ended. And it, next thing you know, my father and others had to go to San Bernardino to pick cotton, do other things just to survive. Oh. And they said, this is just right. I mean, that we lost our jobs to the white man because we were working all these years while, you know, you're, they're out there fighting. So he, he put in the lawsuit. And fortunately, we lived in a community where he wasn't attacked during the time for putting in the lawsuit. Exactly. But as it got closer to becoming a reality, that's when mm-hmm. it really kind of set in. But no, he wasn't going to give up on it. But because it was expensive, if we had more resource financially, it probably would have finished faster. Mm-hmm. But it took 19 years. Curious, what part of Arkansas was he from? Okalona. It's a little small town. Uh, in fact, we still own property in Okalona. Uh, mm-hmm. My father gave me the 10 acres and I haven't even seen it yet. Oh, uh, He hadn't been back to Arkansas. He said he's never going back because mm-hmm. what happened to his family. Mm-hmm. But that part of town in Oklahoma, uh, the Gatlins own probably half of the town, yeah. the banks or whatever. So they keep <laughs> calling me, come on back, Joe. We, we want to show off who we are, and what's going on. But it's a small town. It sounds perfect for a family reunion. Well, it is. They have a, a huge family reunion every uh, at the end of August, first part of September. And with a little luck, I'll be able to go this year. Yeah. More from Mr. Gatlin in San Pedro, California, after this. 
and we're back with more from Mr. Gatlin. Now, one of the things you mentioned, which I, I'm excited about, is telling our story about, and you said about seniors, and I don't know if I, we have time to talk about it, but. <laughs> yeah, we love that. Gene Soroka, as you know, the CEO of the Port of Los Angeles, well, in December of last year, received the award yeah. for being the top port operator in the world. Mm-hmm. And they gave out the award in New York. Mm-hmm. And while he was there, they, the organization gave him money to give to his favorite charity. Well, all he was being covered by all the cables and whatever, as mm-hmm. you can imagine. Well, while he was there, he mentioned that he's given the money to Joe Gatlin and Juneteenth 400. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, who in the hell is Joe Gatlin? <laughs> and right <laughs> now, so CNBC's calling me, everybody's calling me. Why is Gene Soroka giving money to Juneteenth 400 mm-hmm. and Joe Gatlin? And next thing you know, I'm mm-hmm. now working with CNBC on a regular basis. Terrific. We're putting together a book, telling our story. I had a vision that maybe if we reached out to families who were 80, had family members 80, 90, 100 years old. Yeah. I wanted to tell their story because I didn't believe that story was told mm-hmm. by us. I wanted from our perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I've been working with the Port of Los Angeles as a sponsor, mm-hmm. CNBC, uh, we already have a, a book deal started. We already right. have, we're putting together websites. We're reaching out to literally hundreds of families to document their stories, to put it out there. We have uh, the Smithsonian uh, already saying they want to be interested. Uh, the Mount Vernon Project, they came on board with hundreds of recipes, children's stories, oh. stories that are our people don't know anything about, not just about the atrocities, but how we lived since that civil war and how do we progress to be here. And so that's one of the things I'm really happy about too, is working with an organization like CNBC to help make this happen. And so working heard, with us for before I you go. You're, you're <laughs> excited because right. this is just, I, for example, I have a family member who was 97 who passed a week before I started this with CNBC but he was sharp as a tack Mm -hmm. and he the stories he could tell about his mother who died as she was 104 when she died and the grandmother he knew stories that went back to the civil war I mean how they lived every day how they ate recipes children's stories I did a work with uh I'm going to go back a little bit in, in the early 90s. Yeah. I did the work with the Smithsonian and National Geographic, and they were doing a thing with the American Indians. Mm-hmm. They had American powwow in North Carolina where all the tribes were there. This was right before the internet. Mm-hmm. And they came up to me. I don't know why I was the only black person there, but I was there. Mm-hmm. And they said, uh, Joe, the black community ever did this, it would be worth billions. Oh. It worth billions because billions. to travel, the stories, the books, and mm-hmm. it'd be something that would be controlled and owned by the black community. Mm-hmm. It couldn't be taken from us. At the time, we didn't have the internet. I didn't know how to put it together. And now all of a sudden, fast forward to now, mm-hmm. we have the ability to do all of these things. And hopefully we can work as a people together to make this happen. Oh, definitely. So when you when you say bring it all together, what would it what form would it be in? Would it be like uh, 
short uh, documentaries or we're looking at uh, a, a total a book with all these stories? Well, I'm going to give you an idea, though. We first started, when I started with CNBC, they said they were going to do mm-hmm. a book. Mm-hmm. But there's no way to do a book of a thousand families. Right. So we started doing Zoom calls out to families. They said, Joe, how many families would you get initially interested? They were hoping 50 to 70. Mm-hmm. We got over 500. Yeah. The Port of Los Angeles gave us the capability to call these families. And now, which I didn't know at the time, if you do a Zoom, you can also, it can be transcribed as we're videoing. Mm-hmm. So it's not only being a video, but it's being transcribed. Mm-hmm. So now we have the ability to transcribe it and put it on. If you could imagine a, a giant movie screen. Yeah. In each movie screen, there's a dot. And each dot is a story. And we can put tens of thousands of stories on now websites mm-hmm. and share it with other communities in the Black communities. And we put it all together. Now we have our own story. From that, we're talking about travel. We're talking about books. We're talking about right. it's probably 20 or 30 different avenues where we can go. I'm not trying to do any of those. <laughs> I just happened to run across a lady, Lorianne LaRocco, who's senior editor for CNBC. Mm-hmm. And she's a storyteller. And mm-hmm. she was so fascinated about what I was doing. So now we're writing a book together. Uh, we have one of my friends is a, a lady named Wilda Spaulding. Okay. Uh, as you know, the Spaulding family, you know, it's sporting goods. Yeah. She was also over mm-hmm. human rights in Geneva. Uh, mm-hmm. to the United Nations for 20, 30 years, but we're best of friends. Nice. She's going to be writing the forward for the book. The Smithsonian said, we'll put that book in the Smithsonian because it's never been done. Good. But we're hoping that could start a fire of many stories being written in, in many communities telling who we are. There's no way that I or you or 10 of us can get all the stories, I don't care how hard we work. Exactly. Because every day we lose Every day we lose someone who has some stories because of old age or, or whatever, COVID or whatever. So I'm fighting every day to capture as many stories as possible. Yes. Nice. Nice. This is telling our story, our history to our people. And we don't know who we are right now. It's been written that we're the only people on the planet who don't know who we are. Mm. We don't know our history. We don't know. I mean, Africa's three times the size of the U.S., but if you ask someone from Europe, I'm a German, I'm Italian. Right. We have no idea who we are or what our language was, what our history. But now because of technology, we can capture all of that. And right now, for example, if you wore some African gear, mm-hmm. but where are you coming from? Right. Is that really your tribe? Is that really, have you, now, the technology is there where we can now pinpoint to almost a foot where you came from. It changes everything. Stories. They said the bedtime stories alone mm-hmm. would be would take volumes of books. That if we reached out to our whole community to find out what those stories are, mm-hmm. there's just so much recipes. The Mount Vernon project. We reached out to them. They have literally thousands of recipes. We want to make sure our community knows about, but not only know that. about them, but how are they started? Well, mm-hmm. they most of them were started here, but yeah. some were started in other places. Also got calls from. Uh, South America, mm-hmm. Central America, oh. the Caribbean. As you know, many of our slaves were taken there. So this is a huge project, which I'm really excited about. But I'm more excited that we have someone like a CNBC, Port of LA, who has billions who are supporting this. 
So I'm now just now starting to reach out to the community to let them know what we're doing. So they can be also take whatever part of this they want. This is this is us. And I'm excited about it. And how can people contact you about this project? Right now, my next move is that I'm I'm interviewing. Initially, I had a couple of groups who wanted to do the website. Yes. But they just weren't big enough or they didn't see the vision. They saw mm-hmm. a little teeny part of it. For this to happen, it can't be just Joe Gatlin doing a website <laughs> right. or Nicole doing a website or Brian doing it. This has to be done all through our country, yeah, Central America. And somehow, how do we unite that work? We can all look into each other's, not just make it, you know, this is mine. I'm not going to share it. Right. This is something we have to share. And how do we set it up where we're sharing this information and all mm-hmm. these stories with each other and then let our people decide what movies are made from it or whatever. And if there's a way we can do it where we're in control of it. Yeah. And once it gets out there, we don't do it right and, and, and program it right. Anyone can take it. Exactly. You hear what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. Exactly. You know, I'm just trying to get the word out there. So when I talk to individuals like yourself who are smart and, and understand all of these good things, we'll find out how to do this to protect ourselves and how we as a people can benefit from it. Since we're talking about the people that are, are listening out there, our listening audience, how significant is this, um, this mission that you have in making a difference, you know, to the black community? It's what I do every day. I, I've been, mm-hmm. when they, I got interviewed by CNBC, they said, Joe, you've been doing this 50, 60 years, you know, and yes, right. I've been doing it, but right now because of technology and because of relationships, mm-hmm. the time is now. Yes. Uh, we have an opportunity to save our history, but if we don't, once it's said, and once it's documented, it's real. But if something is not documented, they can say it never happened. Exactly. Our slavery never happened. What we went through that we have, as you know, after the Civil War, they said, well, why didn't your people start going to schools? We weren't, it was illegal for us to learn how to read right. when we were slaves. Mm-hmm. Now we had millions who couldn't read, mm-hmm. had no property. How did they survive? Right. How did we get here as a people? And right now, only one who told that story has been told from the white perspective, the conquerors, which has always been done. But because of technology, and as we as a people somehow get together, we can tell the story from our perspective. And so Amen. the book that we're writing is not because every penny from this book, and I want you to know this, is going to scholarships. I'm not taking a dime. Oh, good. No. So tell us about, um, is it the San Pedro Juneteenth Committee? San Pedro. San Pedro. If you come to San Pedro and you say Pedro, you get run out of town. Oh, <laughs> please don't run me out of town. <laughs> San <laughs> of Pedro. Town. That's right. It's Pedro. Pedro. Uh, San Pedro Committee uh, started in 1980. Mm-hmm. And what it happens, we were going to funerals all the time. Mm. And they said, hey, we're tired of going to funerals. Maybe and seeing our people, maybe we could have a picnic once a year. Mm-hmm. And so they picked the third week in June, not knowing it was Juneteenth. Oh. <laughs> well, during that period of time, I was in the Middle East in Kuwait doing some work. Mm. Uh, my mother found out how slow it was going. She says, well, it's when Joe gets back, we'll blow this up. When I got back, fortunately, our relationship now with the ILWU was good. Mm-hmm. I reached out to their president and I said, I want to do a Juneteenth. 
And each year he got bigger and bigger. In fact, in 2004 and five, we did fireworks. And if you can imagine, <laughs> it's only three or 4,000 blacks in San Pedro. Yeah. But we had 3,000 blacks in San Pedro at the park. Nice. <laughs> and it was just with fireworks and it just is just grown every year. Everybody's welcome, right? <laughs> oh, it's a love fest. In fact, we I remember I had Senator Garnett at the at the event and we while we were walking the park because we took the whole park. And she says, everybody was saying it, cousin Joe, cousin Joe. Aww. She says, Joe, how many cousins do you have? <laughs> I would call everyone cuz because I had so many cousins there. Growing up, I just wanted to get a sense of what it was like for you growing up in San Pedro and uh, your family and some of the lessons that you learned growing up and what was always shared with you uh, as a young person that stuck with you uh, up until this time even. I was always surrounded by family, but it was family. Family meant so much. Uh, we had family opening up businesses. We had a barbecue. We had a, uh, they had a barber shop. I mean, it was family. Mm -hmm. And so we felt safe. Uh, if you see the map of how San Pedro's mm -hmm. laid out, we're on a peninsula. There's no crosstown traffic. <laughs> if you lived in Pedro or you worked in Pedro, there's no reason to be here. So everybody knew everyone. Yeah. And even the whites, the Croatian, the Spanish, we all got along. I didn't even know what racism really was growing mm -hmm. up as a kid at the level that everyone was talking about until I got in the army. Wow. And that went to Texas. And I went to a laundromat that said whites and colored. I wasn't sure what they were talking about. Mm. Whites and colored. I thought they were talking about whites, colored. No, Clothing. they said whites could wash here. <laughs> colored could wash over there. You thought about laundry. You thought it was laundry. Yeah, I, I got was, whites and colored. That's a first for me to hear that. <laughs> I couldn't even figure it out. I said, what the heck is this? And what is your, what is your uh, mission that you're working on now? What's part of your top priorities my top priority right now is jobs mm -hmm. uh, because of the job situation it changes everything again pedro back in the day was pedro for pedro and so if you lived in pedro you had a better chance of getting the good jobs on the waterfront but as you go into south central compton watts they were maybe only 20 miles away right but their ch chance of getting a job was almost zero yeah. so what i've been reaching out to do is changing that where because it changes we had a, a church a pastor come in small church maybe a hundred members but now four of those members are working on the waterfront making hundreds of thousands of dollars it changes the church it changes the little borders community it changes everything especially i'm not talking about everyday job we're talking about career jobs that pay money to take care of families and that's what i'm pushing for and a big part of the L.A. County elections, the primaries are um, happening at the time of this uh, conversation with you. Uh, how big uh, a role does politics play uh, in L.A. County to San Pedro? Everything. The mayor of Los Angeles selects the CEO of the port. Wow. A port that does a billion and a half every day. Yes. So we're the economic engine right now mm -hmm. for the entire area. Wow. And so what happens here, like when you saw the slowdown, how it changed not only L.A., but the whole country. Yeah. We are the mm -hmm. economic engine. We understand that. 
and there's a the jobs we want to be part of it, the contracts we want to be part of it, the leadership. There's over 45,000 jobs that you can apply for. We need to be at every level to make sure we have a seat at the table. And that's what I'm pushing for. We have to stop having our hand out for being part of this. So I, I think this the time is right. So when I heard Nicole was going to interview me today and Brian, you're going to be there, I got so excited Aww. because this is now. Absolutely. Yes, it is. Mr. Gatlin, it's definitely been a pleasure, and I'm sure we'll see you again. I'm sure we will. I mean, we might as well team up with him, right, Bryant? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> and thank you, Naja Roberts of Ahead of the Crypto Curve, for this wonderful connection. Here at Before We Go, we put history on record. Wonderful to find a kindred spirit. And be sure to visit us for more rich history at BeforeYouGo.tv. That's BeforeYouGo.tv. And thank you all for listening to us here on KBLA Talk 1580. And before we go, we want to remind everyone that those who made history with stories like these probably make what you do today possible. So let's make the time to spend the time with those who have paved the way. There's no time like the present. What What a a gift. gift.